Good morning uh, brethren and sisters, young people and friends. Thanks Brother Chuck for giving that little bit of a brief introduction about what we've been doing. Uh, Welcome again to those who are joining us this morning. I think this morning's study and the exhortation are able in many respects to stand in their own right, uh, but there would also have been uh, uh, some advantage in hearing the studies uh, yesterday. At least I hope there would have been some advantage for those who did. Uh, Basically though what we have tried to uh, suggest is this, that the record of Christ's life in John's Gospel is distinctly different from the records in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Matthew sees the Lord as a king, Mark sees him as a, a servant, John sees him as the son of man. But John looks right through the flesh and he sees God manifest in the flesh. Now, as we've said before, uh, when people come to preach the Trinity, they almost invariably go to John's Gospel because here's another one of the expressions we've used a lot. John uses absolute language. You're either in light or you're in darkness. There's no shade of grey. You're either in life or you're in death. And if you're in life, that life is going to become eternal life. So that he can say, as we'll read in John 17 uh, in our exhortation, know ye not that ye have eternal life. But we haven't got eternal life. Well, he says, you've got to be in one or two positions. You are either heading directly to the grave where you will stay ultimately forever. Doesn't mean they mightn't be resurrected for judgment, but ultimately you'll stay there forever or else you're going to live forever. So this is the language of John. So that when John looks at Jesus... He can hear Jesus saying, I and my Father are one. And that's going to come out in John 10 this morning. And one of the things that we perhaps didn't mention, but which I think is very important, and that is that many of us, when we come to John's Gospel, see it as a series of Bible difficulties to be explained away to people who believe the Trinity, such as those words in John 10 verse 30, I and my Father are one. Now really what we've got to do in talking to our interested friends is say, look, the only way to understand John 10 verse 30 is to start at John chapter 1 verse 1 and we will work our way through and maybe six months later we get to John 10 verse 30 and they say, oh, I can see that. So what we've been endeavouring to do is to take a positive attitude towards it and to allow John to lift our minds up and to quote something that I've quoted several times, John doesn't take us up in easy stages. He takes us straight up. But how often did we find the Lord when he was speaking to people holding a conversation in which they seemed to be talking two different languages? And they were. The Lord was talking what we will call the language of the Spirit, be it Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, the woman of Samaria, the disciples that followed him around the lake, whoever it is, they were thinking according to the flesh. So here was the Lord looking right through what they were saying and saying, this is your real problem and I'm answering that. And so there was at times a conflict situation. Now this morning we come to John chapter 10 and notice the opening words. Notice the opening words of John chapter 10. What are the two words? Verily, verily. And what did we say about verily, verily or as it can be translated truly, truly? Where do these words occur? at the beginning of a new subject or, I see heads shaking like that, no, they are the continuation of something which was said before and here's the message that I, Jesus, I, John, want to give you. So what it's telling us then is that John chapter 10, which seems to stand as a story in its own right, really arises out of the events of chapter 9. Bearing in mind, of course, that John didn't put the chapter divisions there, it was some later compiler of the Bible. So what have we got in John chapter 9? Well, the whole of John chapter 9 is one of those signs of John's Gospel. Just a reminder, John doesn't record miracles as such. Oh yes, they were miraculous works. But the eight miracles that John records, he calls them signs. For the very obvious reason that the biggest problem John, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ had was not handling his enemies, but handling his friends. Friends who followed him for the wrong reason. They followed him because he was a miracle worker. 
You followed me because I filled your stomachs with bread, he said, not because you perceived the sign. So yesterday we looked at this, the fourth sign, didn't we? The loaves and fishes. Now we've come in chapter 9 to the sixth sign, the healing of the blind man. Whoever heard of one that was born blind being healed, we are told in this story. So the Jewish rulers had a real problem. And they tried to get him to say, look, say that you didn't know who this man was, or say you didn't know what had happened. And he got to the point of saying, uh, Take verse 25 of John chapter 9. Let's just pick up enough of the narrative to make sense. John chapter 9 and verse 25. The blind man, that is the man who was blind, they said to him, say that he was a sinner. He said, whether he was a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, what did he do to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you don't hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? This was uh, developing a real nasty situation. And these Jewish rulers didn't like their, their position and their so-called integrity to be called in question. So they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke unto Moses, but as for this fellow... We know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them in verse uh, 30, Why, herein is a marvellous thing, that you know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshipper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Now here comes the climax to the story and believe it or not the basis of what we're going to read in John chapter 10. Verse 34 They answered and said unto him Thou wast altogether born in sin and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. That's the way to get rid of problems in the ecclesia isn't it? Anyone gives you a problem? Throw them out. You know I'm not being serious there. But it's this very expression, cast him out, which can actually be used in a positive way as we're going to find in just a moment in John chapter 10. But it wasn't the only time the word occurred because when we read in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. With thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. You know, each time there was a miracle, we had to see what the sign is. And you see, the Lord did not just cure that man because he felt sorry for the fact that he was blind. He did. He did feel sorry. But in John's record, there was always a greater point. You know, we were discussing uh, uh, after the meeting last night about the different signs. And the very first sign was the turning of the water into wine. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had come to Jesus and said, look, they've run out of wine. Isn't there something we can do? There was no way in the world she was wanting him to or even expecting him to, to turn water into wine. It appears Joseph was dead at this stage and Jesus, the oldest son in the family, was therefore the one she looked to. And Jesus' answer was in a sense rebuke. Look, I'm not here just to provide wine, but the Lord did. Not for the sake of providing wine, but to show forth a sign. And that's why it says in John chapter 2, this beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. So each of the signs, therefore, sorry, each of the miracles was to be a sign. Now what was the sign of the blind man? There it was. I am come into the world for judgment, that they which see not might see, and those people who think they see, like these Pharisees, might be blinded. Not that the Lord wanted to try and keep people out of the kingdom, 
But when he spoke to them the words of the Spirit, they were confused. Sometimes, though, it did convert them, didn't they? And there was Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, a classic example of a Pharisee, and although he'd been blind, he did actually uh, come to see. And some of, verse 40, some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth. So a conflict situation, not just now a discussion in words, but really bad feelings. Bad feelings initially between the Jewish rulers and this man. So verse 34 says, They cast him out. And when Jesus heard that they cast him out, then this conversation took place. Now, we come to John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. It's going to be obvious that he has in mind these Jewish rulers. They're going to be thieves and robbers in this early part. But you know, there's actually uh, two stories here. Uh, the one that goes down to verse uh, 10 depicts Christ as the door of the sheepfold. Uh, and from verse 11, the theme changes a little bit because the Lord then depicts himself as the good shepherd. So we've got two stories there. You might have noticed I've avoided using the word parable. Actually, there are no parables in John's Gospel despite the fact that you can see in verse 6 the word parable. That word parable there is not the normal word for parable, which is actually parabole. It's the Greek word that comes straight across. Uh, this is a word uh, which is, I think, paroma, if I can find it somewhere here in my marginal notes. Um, and it's a word which means uh, more an allegory. Just, just by the way, we won't make a big issue of it, but if you're making notes, there are no parables in John's Gospel. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, perhaps my note here might be of help. It says this, A parable is actually a short narrative uh, which is kept wholly separate from the ideal facts which it signifies. Uh, this story is an extended metaphor rather than a parable. Parables generally centre around the basic concept of the kingdom of God. They do not normally enlarge on the relationship which its king bears to the separate members. The word parable in chapter 10 verse 6 is better rendered as allegory, the Greek paromia. John never uses the word parabole, nor do the synoptic gospels ever use paromia. Okay, I don't want to make a big point out of that, but uh, just in case someone says, well, the speaker said there's no parables in John's gospel and my Bible says parable, well, it's one of those translation things. So, avoiding then the word parable, there are two allegories here in John chapter 10. First of all, Christ as the door, down to verse 10, and then as the good shepherd. So they're similar, they're both having to do with sheep and sheepfolds and that sort of thing. Now, back to our more direct story. Remember what has happened? They've cast him out of the synagogue. Truly, truly, I say, he that entereth in by the door, uh, they cast him out of the synagogue. What did they do? They, they threw him out the door. And you might say, oh, this is being a little imaginative, isn't it? No, not at all. Just wait and see. Anybody entering in by another way is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and he leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep. See that expression? When he putteth forth his own sheep. That's exactly the same expression as was found back in verse 34. The Pharisees put him out, cast him out. But look at the difference. They cast him out to get rid of him. He was a problem. This man's a problem in the ecclesia. The only way to solve it is get rid of him. You know, that's never been the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not the message either of passages like Matthew 18. 
You know, Matthew 18 is all about how to restore your brother. And for those who aren't familiar with Matthew 18, Matthew 18 says, if your brother trespass against you, go to him privately and speak to him. If that doesn't help, then take along somebody else. Maybe a couple of people. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, the thing can be established. But the whole point is to redeem your brother, to restore him. And if that doesn't work, well maybe you've got to tell it to the whole ecclesia. Bear in mind when Matthew 18 was spoken, there was no such thing as an ecclesia. Peter was being told about something which still was future. So tell it to the whole ecclesia. And if he doesn't hear the whole ecclesia, treat him as a publican, that is a tax collector, and as a man of the Gentiles. Without going back to Matthew 18, if you read the concluding verses of chapter 17, you'll see how the Lord treated a tax collector. He said to Peter, because the tax collector says, does your master pay the temple tax? And he says, yes. And so the Lord said to Peter, of whom do the kings of the Gentiles take taxes? Of their own sons or others? And he said, well, others, the kings of the Gentiles, don't take taxes from their own children. So the Lord says, in effect, that temple down in Jerusalem, this temple tax they want, whose temple is that? And in effect, he was saying, that's my father's. So by rights, I could demand my right and say, I don't have to pay that temple tax because, you see, uh, that's my father's house. But Peter, lest we put a stumbling block in their way, you go down, catch a fish, When you open its mouth, you'll find in there enough money to pay the tax for two people. For you and me, Peter, because we're in this together. Peter, you've just told me back back in Matthew 16, you know who I am, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. So go and pay the temple tax, lest you put a stumbling block in their way. Now when you come to Matthew 18, the last step is, this person has not responded. Treat him like a tax collector. How did the Lord treat a tax collector? Well, Matthew certainly knew, didn't he? Because Matthew himself had been a tax collector. Go right back to square one and maybe teach the truth right over again from the start. But whatever you do, don't put a stumbling block in his way. Now, this is a side issue to John chapter 10, but it's the principle. Everything in Matthew 18 is about how to restore your brother, even though at some time you might actually withdraw fellowship from him but you are withdrawing fellowship from him for positive reasons. Not to get rid of him, but to make him realise that this issue is a serious issue. Maybe it's a moral issue. If it's a doctrinal issue, well, that may be even more difficult. But whenever do you stop trying to restore your brother? And we're laying the foundation for our exhortation later from John 17. At what point do you say enough is enough? Well, Peter asked that question. How many times do I forgive my brother? Seven times? And the Lord said, 70 times 7. And if you multiply that, you say, oh, you mean 490 times. No. 7 is the number of completeness. You never, ever stop trying. So, what have these Pharisees done? They had cast him out to get rid of him. They had no intention of redeeming him. Now, what about this story here? The shepherd now comes into the sheepfold. Now, here is our picture. The sheepfold was the place where the shepherd took the sheep at night, the porter at the door sealed the door and during the night hours they were there preserved from all of those prowlers of the night. Then in the morning along came the shepherd and verse 4 says that in the morning he putteth forth his own sheep and it's the same expression as cast them out or cast him out back in chapter 9 but why does he put him forth? He goes before him and the sheep follow him and he takes them out to pasture. So see the difference. Christ is the door. During the night of Gentile darkness we have the security of the sheepfold, of our ecclesia. And so on the one hand we come together because we need this separation from the world. We need to have the security of one another. We want to leave the world outside there. And we have that difficulty. So when we get into that sheepfold of a night, we can talk then about the things that we've left behind us and the positive things of the truth. But we need reinforcing, don't we? 
And every day we need to partake of that word. So in the morning, along comes the shepherd and he takes them out through the door. He puts them out the door. I won't use the word cast them out. It's the same in the Greek. But he goes before them. And so it's all done on the basis of access through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to the sheepfold through Christ. In other words, baptism. Baptism brings us into the sheepfold, but it's not just a one-way thing. It is both preserving us during the night hours and feeding us during the day hours. So in the first part here then, we have Lord Jesus Christ as the door. Who's the porter? The porter is God himself. I mean, it's God's sheepfold. We are part of God's family. The Lord Jesus Christ, as that firstborn son, is the shepherd of the sheep. But the principal thrust here uh, in the early verses of John chapter 10, down to verse 10, was to make a contrast with what the Pharisees had done in handling that man who'd been born blind. So you see, the sequel then to the curing of the blind man is this allegory of Christ as the door. They cast you out of the door of the synagogue. I'm the door. I'm the door to God's sheepfold. I can give you the preservation during the night hours of, dare we say, Gentile darkness. We need that now and I can take you out and feed you. But what we want to come principally to now is the next point that he makes, which is really an extension because he is not only the door, he's also the shepherd. And what we want to look at and consider are the, the attributes then of this one who is the, the great shepherd of the sheep. We pick up the expression in, uh, in John chapter 10 and, and at verse 11 where we read there, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now we want to consider for a moment the responsibilities of a shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ is a shepherd. When he spoke here about the good shepherd, the figure of the shepherd in the scripture would have been very, very well known to these Jewish people. Possibly one of the best known illustrations would have been Ezekiel chapter 34. Maybe some of you would have thought we'd have gone back to Psalm 23. I don't think we even need to go back to Psalm 23. We know that one so well. But in Ezekiel chapter 34, we've got prophecy against the shepherds. Now, Ezekiel chapter 34 and the opening verses presents the lesson in a negative way. So we've got to invert it and make it positive. Now, that's not difficult. What we find here in Ezekiel chapter 34 is Ezekiel offering, uh, extending a prophecy here, a prophecy concerning the shepherds. Now, bear in mind also what we said about prophecy. Prophecy is not so much foretelling the future. It's telling us what we should do in view of the future. Being like we are, we're always interested in current events and what will happen. God says, I'm more concerned that you take some action in view of what will happen. So Ezekiel chapter 33 to 39 is that section in Ezekiel which is known as the prophecies of the restoration. I I, I won't digress at this point and give you a breakdown of Ezekiel, but there are five parts in Ezekiel. The glory appears, chapters 1 to 3. The glory departs, chapters 4 to 25. Uh, The glory is hidden, chapters 26 to 32. The glory prepares to return. And this is the section which applies to our days because Ezekiel chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel chapter 38, the Gogian invasion. Ezekiel chapter 39, the cleansing of the land. The prophecies of the restoration, it applies to our day. And then chapters 40 to 48, the glory returns. And so having said, I wouldn't give you a breakdown of Ezekiel, I've just given you one, but it was about the shortest I could do. I'm suggesting, brethren and sisters, there could be a very, very sober warning. This was directed against the the shepherds of Ezekiel's day, but it's found in that section of the Bible 
that section of Ezekiel which is known as the prophecies concerning the time of the restoration of Israel and the preparation of the glory to return. Who are the shepherds he's speaking to then today? Is it spiritual Israel? Is it our ecclesial environment? Okay, next question before we read this. Who in an ecclesia does not have the responsibility of being a shepherd? Well, you might say, well, the arranging brethren are shepherds, uh, the speakers are shepherds, the Sunday school teachers are shepherds, uh, those who teach the truth to others, they're shepherds. Well, who does not have the responsibility of being a shepherd? And the answer is there is nobody that does not have that responsibility. So when you put all those double negatives together, we're saying everybody has in some way or other the responsibility of being a shepherd. And the strange thing is, we are all also sheep. And the wonderful thing is that if we're all acting as shepherds, then we're seeing everybody else as sheep, and they're seeing us as sheep, and we're all intent on caring for each other. Now, look at what these shepherds didn't do, and look what happened. And so, from the negative, we hope to bring forth a positive. In Ezekiel chapter 34, he's told to prophesy against the shepherds in verse 2. Let's see then what the shepherds should have done. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? They do feed themselves. If I ask this question, I'm sure everybody who has been here in the last two days must know the answer. What is the sort of person that has been baptised and come into the ecclesia and their frame of mind is that they are feeding themselves? Why are they in the truth? What's their motivation in the truth? Their motivation in the truth, I am in the truth because I want to be saved. I want personal salvation. And I will take everything out of the ecclesia I can get so that I can be saved. Are they in the truth for God manifestation? How do we manifest God? We serve God by serving others. That's how we do it. We can serve God in our mind, but in our practical ways, we serve God by serving others. So look at what they didn't do. We pick it up from the latter part of verse 3. These are the six things they didn't do. Now watch as we read these, because there's a very definite progression here. Progression? Progression means going forward. This wasn't going forward, but it's going forward in words. But it's going down in attributes. Latter part of verse 3. You are not feeding the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened. You've not healed those that were sick. You've not bound up those that were broken. You've not brought again those that were driven away. Neither have you sought those that were lost. But with force and with cruelty you've ruled over them. Now I use the word progression. I mean progression in a downward direction. Look at this. Latter part of verse 3. You're not feeding the flock. If they had been feeding the flock, then there wouldn't have been any weak ones. It's the weak ones that become the sick ones. It's the sick ones that become torn by the wild beasts. It's the torn ones that get driven out. And it's the driven out ones that eventually stray. Can you apply that to human beings? If we are feeding the flock, as the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 24, who then is a faithful and a wise servant whom his Lord has appointed in the household to give food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh shall find so doing. But you see, if I'm sitting here saying, well, what am I getting out of this meeting? Oh, I don't think this was as good as last week or next week or yesterday and I, I think I'll stop home. I can do better stopping home reading my Bible than going to Bible class. Sometimes you hear this sort of thing said. Who am I thinking about? I'm thinking about me. So all of us have the opportunity to feed. We come together and we study the Word. We have the opportunity to, to talk about it afterwards. We come to a meeting, we have the opportunity to sit down and think about it before, chat about some of the things that are going to happen. We are here to direct our minds and our brethren and sisters' minds to the things of the truth. 
We leave behind us the things of the world. I am not say it's wrong to say that you know you came in and your wife can't be here because she's sick or your daughter's done something. We are interested in each other's well-beings. But there's a lot of things happening out there. We're not the least bit interested in what we saw on the television last night or, or, uh, or who won the baseball or, or whatever it might be. We are here to feed each other. And we feed each other with the things of the Spirit. And that's what John's Gospel is all about. So if you are feeding the flock, then you're not going to have weak ones. Now every one of us have that responsibility to do that to the best of our ability. So it's the, the ones that aren't being fed properly that become weak, the weak become sick, the sick become torn, the torn become driven out, the driven out become strange. At what point do we very often assess the situation that I think brother or sister so-and-so isn't going too well? Which of those six stages have they reached? The chances are it's step number six. We haven't seen them for a while. They haven't been around. And whose fault is that? Oh, well, you know, they never really were serious about it. They, they, they still had their, their friends out there and, and, you know, they were still tied up with this uh, activity or club or something. And, and their mind really wasn't on the trip. Oh, yes, yes, yes. There's all sorts of excuses. What had I done to help them when I did see them? And you see, I think the trouble in ecclesial life is that most of us don't see ourselves as having that responsibility. Especially if we're young in the truth, be it young in age or young since our baptism. These were not good shepherds. Now it's very easy to invert all that and say, what should we be doing? We should feed the flock. And ideally, there won't be weak ones. Now I say ideally because... We don't do it perfectly. There will become some weak ones. But at least we can perhaps notice they're weak, maybe just because of, I don't know, the, the general conversation or you can just sense it somewhere or other. So you invite yourself around, invite yourself around or you invite them around and say, come around and do the readings tonight or, or something like that. You know, I know we can't have our heads buried in our Bible 24 hours of the day and nobody is saying that. But you know, if we are studying our Bibles... And I hope maybe our study from John's going to help us that when we go back into the world, say on Monday morning, you know, I think many of us here are going to start to see our employers or our friends at work or something in a different light. We're going to just see them a little bit more through God's eyes. Isn't that what we've learnt from John's Gospel? When Jesus looked at these people, he felt sorry for them. I think he felt sorry for the Pharisees. He felt sorry for Nicodemus. My word, he, he gave Nicodemus a, an upbraiding, didn't he? But Nicodemus accepted it. So what we're trying to do is see each other through God's eyes and see each other's, our brothers and sisters' needs. Now, this of course is what the, the good shepherd did. So when we go back to, uh, to John chapter 10, we've now got the Lord saying that he is the good shepherd. He did all of these things perfectly. Not that he got perfect results because not everybody responded. But our exhortation then is that if we're going to follow the example of the Lord then it's got to be seen in this sense as being of the, of the good shepherd. There was a, an extract taken from a book called Thompson's The Land and the Book Incidentally, there's a, a set of notes, I think they're still readily available, uh, published by Logos Publications called The Prophecies of the Restoration, done by Brother H.P. Mansfield before he died. It's an excellent set of notes. It goes from Ezekiel 33 to 39. If you've got it, get it out and read chapter 34. It was there that I found a reference to uh, this book called Thompson, The Land and the Book, written, uh, well, we used to say last century, um, now we've got to say the century before last when he travelled through Palestine uh, when things were much simpler than they are now and this is what he saw uh, when he looked at uh, a shepherd with his sheep and I can tell you this, I'll guarantee this but because I've told you you may not do it but if I hadn't told you this you'd have got halfway through this and you thought he's not talking about sheep, he's talking about people well, listen to it then in that light. This is a page out of the book. You may be able to find the part I'm quoting from because I'm not reading it all. Uh, it's, it's somewhere down uh, 
uh, it's somewhere down, uh, I don't know, about in here I think. I think it, it, some of it is there and some of it is up there. But just, just listen to it anyway. He sh- says, The shepherd goes before, not merely to point the way, but to see that it is practicable and safe. He is armed in order to defend his charge, and in this he is very courageous. You might have seen some of those words if you did. I think uh, uh, we're going to pick it up pretty soon from here anyway. He says, some sheep always keep near the shepherd. There it is, some sheep always keep near the shepherd. And are his special favourites. Each of them has a name to which it answers joyfully. And the kind shepherd is ever distributing to such choice portions which he gathers for that purpose. So those that stay near him. These are the contented and the happy ones. They are in no danger of getting lost or into mischief, nor do wild beasts or thieves come near them. The great body, however, are mere worldlings, intent upon their own pleasures or selfish interests. They run from bush to bush, searching for varieties or delicacies, and only now or then lift their heads to see where the shepherd is, and listen to this, or rather where the general flock is lest they get so far away as to occasion remark in their little community or rebuke from their keeper. He's talking about sheep. Others again are restless or discontented, jumping into everybody's field, climbing into bushes. These cost the good shepherd incessant trouble. Then there are others, incurably reckless, who stray far away and are utterly lost. I have repeatedly seen a silly goat or sheep running hither and thither and bleating piteously after the flock only to call forth from their dens the beasts of prey or to bring up the lurking thief who quickly quietens its cries in death. Do you ever feel as though that might be you or me in life or maybe a brother or sister? It does sound so much like human beings. And I thought that little point there Every now and again they look up to see where Christ is or more particularly where the general flock is. And you know, brethren and sisters, if we just keep judging ourselves by others, we're sort of lowering our standards. We must always aim for perfection. We know we're not going to achieve it, but we don't use that as an excuse to say, well, perfection's up here. I think today I'll try to make it to there. No, we always aim for perfection. Because if we aim lower, we will achieve correspondingly lower results. So don't come in and say, well, I've attended more meetings than brother so-and-so, or I think I've marked up more of my Bible than sister so-and-so. It's not a matter of me comparing myself with you, because what happens then is, to make myself feel better, I push you down a bit, and you say, well, have you heard what brother so-and-so's done recently? And so you start spreading stories of a negative nature, because in pushing the other person down, you push yourself up. These are the complexities of human nature. Well, back to our subject. We are both shepherds and sheep. Thompson there is talking about the role of sheep. And by the way, if you went back to Ezekiel 34, which we won't, in Ezekiel 34, the second half of the chapter does speak about a responsibility of sheep. And he spoke about the the big sheep getting down into the water first, muddying it all up, and by the time the the little sheep got down, the weaker ones, the water wasn't worth drinking. So you see, both as shepherds and sheep, we have our roles in life. Well, back to the direct story in John. That's an exhortation which I've derived from there for for you and for myself, and I think is very, very relevant. But now let's have a look at what the Lord actually says here, because he's going to bring us to a section which two days ago we might have called one of those parts of John's Gospel where we have some Bible difficulties. Now, never again are you going to use the expression Bible difficulty. I I say that somewhat jokingly, but can you see the point I'm making? God did not put verses in the Bible uh, so that they had to be solved so we could preach the truth to others. Those verses were put in there 
to express some very, very beautiful spiritual point. And because it is so spiritual, the average mind of the flesh doesn't understand it. And those who believe the Trinity and the pre-existence of Christ totally misinterpret it. We're going to come to perhaps one of the most quotable of the Trinitarian quotes. I and my Father are one. But look at the context in which it's, it's going to be spoken here. So basically all we have to do now is really to, to read these words. We've, uh, we've sort of left it somewhere around about uh, verse uh, 16. Therefore, says verse 17, doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. I'm going to gloss over that, because you might say, well, I'm not allowed to use the word Bible difficulty, but I have a little trouble understanding that verse. Okay, that's fine. Uh, There was a division, therefore, among the Jews. So, Remember, Jews always mean the Jewish rulers. They don't like him. And this incident didn't, didn't help to improve the relationships. Many of them said, oh, he's got a devil. He's mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem of dedication and it was winter. Is John usually interested in the weather? John usually interested as whether there's grass that's sitting around that the people can sit on? Of course not. So he says, it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, it was winter. This time of the year the days were short and likewise spiritually the light of the gospel did not shine brightly because of the opposition of the Jews. Just think about that. When John puts in something that seems to be natural, you say there must be more to it. We've got to keep moving. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. The Jews came around and said, look, how long are you you going to make us to doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you and you didn't believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now stop there for a moment. Jesus has said that he was the good shepherd, but really God is the good shepherd. You know, Psalm 23 says Yahweh is my shepherd so the father himself is really the shepherd but the father doesn't come down to the earth and do it he sent on this occasion his son so the son is the good shepherd acting on his father's behalf so he says I told you and you believed not the works that I do in my father's name they bear witness of me verse 26 But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me... Question. Where did we come across an expression like that before? My Father which gave them me... Didn't we get that in John chapter 6 last night? All that the Father has given me? Okay, John chapter 6, John chapter 10. Wait for John 17. Wait for John 17. That's going to be one of the highlights of our exhortation. In what sense have we been given to the Son? Leave it for the moment. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand, I and my father are one. Now, two days ago, many of you would have said, that's a Bible difficulty. It's not a Bible difficulty, it's the climax of a beautiful expression, isn't it? The climax of a beautiful exposition. You Pharisees, you cast him out of the door. You know, I'm really the door of the sheepfold, and I'm also the shepherd. And I go in and out that door and I put people in there for protection and when I cast them out, I go before them and I feed them because I'm the good shepherd. I know it's my father that's the good shepherd and nobody can pluck them out of my father's hand but I'm acting on his behalf so nobody can pluck them out of my, fa- out of my hand and all that the father has given me I will preserve because I and my father are one. 
So next time someone says, don't you believe the Trinity? Well, how do you explain John 10.30? Well, at the very least, you're going to say, well, let's go back to the beginning of John chapter 10. And then you're going to say, well, I don't think that's far up. I think we've got to go back further. And you'll end up giving something like the three addresses I gave yesterday. Can you see the, the point? We, we say it slightly lightheartedly, but actually very, very seriously. To understand John's Gospel, we've got to keep reading and reading and reading and reading and reading it. I certainly don't deprecate the use of, of concordances, not at all. But of all the writings in the Bible, probably you can get away with understanding John more easily than most others without the use of a concordance. That was a rather convoluted sentence. Uh, what I'm trying to say is John would be regarded by many as one of the most difficult books and yet it's one of the easiest if you just keep reading and reading and reading and reading it and get the mind of the Lord. So I and my Father are one. You know, it goes on further. So the Jews took up stones to stone him, says verse 31. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because thou being a man, makest thyself God. You see, they didn't understand he was God manifest in the flesh. Well, what does the Lord say? Does the Lord say, now here's a classic example, does the Lord say, look, <laughs> you've misunderstood me. I never actually said I was God. What I said, I was the Son of God. I spoke of God as my Father. Is the Lord going to do that? Did he ever do that before? And for those who weren't here yesterday, we've seen many examples of where the Lord says, you're having difficulty? Well, try this. And he makes it harder. Not to confuse them, but to challenge them to the point where they've got to stop and think. And of course, our classic example was Nicodemus, who got treated probably more roughly, we might say. Please excuse the expression. But he got pretty hard treatment. And yet he was the first one to be there to ask for the body of the Lord. So, he, does he say, I never said that, you've mistaken me? He says, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, Psalm 82 verse 6, I said you are God's? God had said to the leaders of the children of Israel, You are Elohim. You are mighty ones. If he called them, and I'll use the word Elohim, it's not of course here in the Greek, but it was back in the Hebrew. If he called them mighty ones, unto whom the word of God had come, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do... Though ye believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. Well, that's the situation that came about as a result of the work of the healing of the blind man. Now, in the few minutes I've got left, I want to put back a transparency that we used in study one yesterday, but you're going to see it in a different form. First of all, yesterday's was black and white. Today's is coloured. That's not the significant difference. The significant difference is that I've added in... I've got to get the right word. I must prepare a word. What I've, I normally say is... When we looked at this yesterday, we spoke about the atonement. Remember how we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ was both Son of God and Son of Man? That he was styled the Word made flesh? Remember that beautiful connection between John 1 verse 14 and Isaiah 40? All flesh is grass, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. And Peter says, this is the Word which by the Gospel is preached unto you. So as flesh Jesus had to die... And as the word which lives and abides forever, God could not leave him in the grave. All those black things there were put down as doctrine. And since the righteousness of God was declared in the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's the doctrine of the atonement. Now what I want to do this morning, and this is where I, I, I've got to find a better word. 
I say I want to put a face to the atonement, by which I mean I want to inject Christ's attitude into it. And it's Philippians chapter 2, which we won't look up, but it's Philippians chapter 2 that now shows to us the spirit in which Christ, in which Christ cooperated with his Father to perform this work. He was son of God. Philippians said he was a former, a manifestation of God. He was son of man, but he took upon himself the manifestation of a servant. Not only a servant, but he was an obedient servant. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here was a man that was a slave, He was a humble slave because he humbled himself. He became obedient, obedient unto death and obedient to the most ignominious death that the Romans could ever invent, that of crucifixion. Look at the spirit of the man. This is the good shepherd. This is why I put it up now. This is the spirit in which Christ served God and his brethren. Is that the spirit in us? Well, God therefore not only raised him from the grave, Not only gave him immortality, he highly exalted him. And so, what we read in the latter part of Philippians is that whilst it's true, as Acts chapter 2 and verse 36 says that God has made him both Lord and Christ, it's more than that. God has given him a name which is above every name. Philippians 2 verse 9 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, Philippians 2 verse 10, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2 verse 11. Now, that's in a sense completed what I want to say. Not totally, because I want to complete our perception of this family relationship in our exhortation this morning from John chapter 17 and I'm going to say almost by word of apology that I've asked if it was alright and it's been suggested yes it's alright for me to do something I would not normally do in an exhortation I do have one overhead transparency which I do think you will find very helpful in understanding what we want to say from John chapter 17 and I would like to use that during the course of the exhortation this morning I trust that it won't offend anybody by the fact that I use that, but I do think it will help us, particularly those new in the truth and those coming to a knowledge of it, uh, to answer some of the questions you were asking the other day, like what is the difference between sons and children? Uh, What is the role of the angels? Where do they fit into all of this? And John chapter 17 is all about Jesus Christ as the firstborn son and we as part of that family. So we will complete our thoughts which we've commenced this morning and God willing bring our study and our exhortation to a climax a little later in the morning from John chapter 17.